Welcome to the Green Minds Podcast. My name is Claudia and I'm honored to welcome Eduardo Biandrade here today. Eduardo is a professor of marketing and co-academic director of the MSc program on climate change management and finance at Imperial College Business School. He teaches a module on sustainable consumption and climate change. His current research agenda focuses on how people feel, think and make decisions in areas related to sustainability, inequality and health. His articles have appeared in leading journals in marketing, public health and psychology. Welcome to the Green Minds podcast, Eduardo. Thanks for having me here. It's a pleasure. So just for context, I recently was a part of this module on sustainable consumption and climate change you taught at Imperial, and it was so good. All of us enjoyed it. So I thought, why not share the knowledge, some of the knowledge with a wider audience? So why don't we start with talking about what led you to exploring sustainable behavior or sustainability in human behavior? Yeah. So first of all, I think it's a great pleasure to share this a little bit of my knowledge with the, the larger audience. It was awesome to teach that class for the first time here at Imperial. The group is fantastic and I really enjoyed it. So in terms of what led me to do research and teach in this area is that my background essentially is in consumer psychology. And I started my career studying how emotions influence judgment and decision making in consumption related areas. And at one point in time, I started looking more at the literature on climate change and sustainability. And it became very clear that the field of consumer behavior could add a lot and contribute a lot to the challenge of climate change. And that's why I started moving my teaching and my research to this area. And that's what led me to get to know you all. Mm-hmm. And But you're a professor of marketing, right? So I assume that, you know, if, if teaching marketing means kind of encouraging consumption, but now you started exploring the sustainability element, as you say, which plays a big role, like that, that consumer behavior plays a big role. How, how do these two kind of opposing poles play together? I think this is a great question because I think that the field of marketing as a discipline is at crossroads yeah. exactly for the reason that I just mentioned, right? In marketing, we are obviously also interested in, in satisfying needs and wishes and wants and in doing so, increase sales and also increase brand value and so on. But now when it comes to sustainable consumption, we also should consider the extent to which this increase may be harmful in the long run. So the challenge is how we accommodate the goals of the discipline, and there's a lot of debate on this, and climate change and sustainability. And that's why these areas of social marketing, sustainable marketing, even macro marketing has gained ground and how we can now explore more and systematically try to promote an increase in, 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 in brand value in marketing and even in sales without leading to excessive consumption, if you will. Mm-hmm. And we'll move on to what actually sustainable consumption is in a second. But before that, while we sp- still speak about kind of how you progress to explore sustainability, you've done a lot of research. So if people go to Google Scholar, you can we can see that you did a lot of research, which is amazing. And is there any piece of research that you are most proud of or something you would like to highlight? So the, the research that I'm more enthusiastic about is the most recent one, mm-hmm. probably by, because of a recency bias or something like that. <laughs> But there are research which investigates the extent to which consumers think of sustainability in the first place when they purchase products and services. That's one thing that excites us, and we can share and talk a little bit more about this. The other one is the extent to which people have correct perceptions of which products and services are more sustainable. That's also, there's a lot of debate and a lot of challenges there. So these are the type of research that consumer researchers are investigating and I and my colleagues have been investigating and which are, we are pretty excited about. Mm. We'll also talk about how kind of research is done in the consumer behavior field because it's mostly reliant on experiments, right? 
So we'll move that to that in a second. But before that, I'd like to kind of introduce sustainable consumption. So it does it have a definition? If yes, could you please share it with us? So the logic between the logic about sustainable consumption is the relationship between my wishes and my desire to consume and the desire of wishes of consumers in the future to consume. So how can I consume in a way that's not going to put at risk others when they are trying to consume? So the relationship is essentially thinking about not only my consumption, but also of consumption of consumers in the future and actually consumption of others, even in the same time space. So the idea is that sometimes the type of the amount and the type of consumption or the amount of the behavioral lifestyle that some consumers have may actually put at risk the other other's ability to consume in and satisfy their own needs. So that's what sustainable consumption starts playing a role. Mm. And what role does sustainable consumption play in fighting climate change? Because there's this debate that many many say that you know only systematic change plays a role, only government regulation and policies help, but demand side mitigation, which is essentially changing consumer behavior, also play, plays an important role, doesn't it? Yes, it certainly does. So I think I think there is supply and demand are quite important. There's no doubt that changes in supply and what's offered and how it's offered and how it's structured and infrastructure and so on and so forth play a dramatic role. But it's also critical that behavior change, critical to acknowledge that behavior change in consumption patterns and consumption lifestyle can also dramatically contribute to our fight on or fight to or how we fight global warming and climate change in general. Mm. And so what does research say about kind of con- sustainable consumption in general? How are we doing? Are we behaving sustainably yet? Kind of, is there any region in the world that is leading in sustainable consumption or is this not possible to assess? For example, I would think that, let's say, a country with the lowest CO2 per capita would have also, would perform well in sustainable consumption. Does this also mean, is, is there a correlation or, or something? I think it's also a very interesting question because you can look at it in two ways. So there are reports, for instance, that measure what we call environmental performance. How much a country has policies, infrastructure, and investment target to sustainability and climate change. If you look at these metrics, you usually find a positive correlation between GDP Mm. and environmental performance. Those who have more money and more education, on average, perform better. Now, if you look at sustainable consumption per se, and the amount, of, the amount of consumption that's in there, then what you find is actually the opposite. It's a negative correlation between GDP mm. and income. And why is that? It's because those who have more resources, they also have more resources not only to implement policies and to be educated and to invest in sustainability, but also have more resources to consume. And they on average consume much more per capita than the less wealthy countries. And that's why you see this. So there are these two aspects that are important. And I think we've discussed a little bit of this in class. And it happens at the country level, but also at the individual level. Mm. At the individual level, I have more resources to invest or to purchase something that's more sustainable, but I also have more resources to consume on average relative to someone who has less resources. So there's these two things to to pay attention to. And sometimes we forget to pay attention on the amount of consumption and focus more on the type of consumption or the type of investment. And I think these two things should go along. Yeah, definitely. This is also related to inequality per se, right? Between countries, also within countries and etc. We'll get to that. But before that, I just want to touch upon one concept that you introduced in class, which is called egocentric bias. So basically, 
Also here we are, this podcast is about sustainability for people interested in sustainability. So it's a specific target group, but not everyone behaves the way our listeners do or, or us too do. So could you please explain what egocentric bias is and what role it has in the sustainable consumption discussion? So when we when we do research and study social psychology or decision making in general, one of the things that we learn is that humans have lots of biases, right? These predispositions to think or behave or make inferences in a certain way. And one of them, a classic one, is the egocentric bias, which is the tendency for us to project our own tastes, preferences, and conclusions onto others. We believe that others are more likely to behave and think like we do. So in, so in the context of sustainability, because we care a lot about sustainability, because we try to be more sustainable consumers and so on, we also tend to believe that others are likely to behave like us, and which is not necessarily the case. So as we study this and as we investigate, we should always keep in mind that people have very, very different preferences. There's a very heterogeneous population of consumers out there, and then we should be mindful of not trying to project too much our preferences, our tastes, when we judge how others are going to behave and how others are going to react on a given circumstances, the extent to which they're going to be more or less likely to buy a sustainable product and so on and so forth. The fact that I'm going to be very sensitive to eco-label, for instance, doesn't mean that this would apply to the general population, despite the fact that I unconsciously tend to project my mm-hmm. taste and my preferences and my inclinations into others. Mm-hmm. No, and this is also the concept of bubbles, right? So we live in a, let's say, sustainability bubble. Some people, other people live in a different bubble. For me, personally, it was very interesting to observe my feelings when I saw some results that you shared about other, like the general results, let's say people behave in this way or in that way. I was like, okay, I wouldn't behave that way, but you know, that's just egocentric bias in practice. So that that leads me kind of to to one thing about, let's say, when we talk about behavior, because when talking about sustainable consumption, one big topic is the green attitude behavior gap. So could you please explain what it is and how we can overcome it? Yeah. So since the the 50s and the 60s, in social psychology mainly, and then it moved to to marketing, consumer behavior, and to other areas, we noticed that there is a clearly discrepancy between what people were reporting, saying, liking, and doing versus exactly what they do, right? Mm. So and this is not, probably not a surprise to anyone who is listening to us. There is a description between what we say and what we do. And there are many reasons for that. And that's what we generally call the attitude behavior gap. It applies very well to sustainability because even if we say and we, that, we are, that we care about sustainability, that we're concerned about, about climate change, When we observe behavior, we see this discrepancy. Consumers reporting, caring a lot, but the behavior not following as much as we would have expected or hoped. So that's exa- that's the gap, what we call green attitude behavioral gap, or simply just the green gap. Mm-hmm. And is there any, for example, this applies to all things starting from people saying they would recycle worse than recycling less? Or what are, could you please name some other examples? There are multiple examples. Mm. So we can say recycling is a, is a good one, but you can also talk about waste, how much I believe they should not waste as much, but then I waste more than, mm-hmm. if you observe actual behavior, you'll notice that people waste more than they actually than they actually would have liked to. You can talk about purchases, buying more versus less sustainable products. I i report that I care a lot about sustainability, but when I, when if you observe my behavior, you're going to notice that actually I'm very price sensitive, which is not necessarily positively correlated with sustainability. So we can see this across the board in, in not only in disposal, but also in purchase and consumption. Mm. It's very strong, varies from, from, again, it varies a lot from, from consumer to consumer, but on average, 
the gaps there. So the question is, what barriers, what obstacles prevent us from behaving in a way that actually we report that we would like to behave? So it's not some people say, well, our consumer is hypocritical because they are saying this, but they are behaving in a different way. But if you look at all the obstacles that are there, that are preventing sustainable consumption from happening, it's actually pretty reasonable to notice this gap. Mm -hmm. So I think the, the main challenge is how can you identify these obstacles and try to remove them so that consumers can move from the verbal report to the actual behavior of oil. Yeah, this is a ni nice bridge to my next question or like the next section of this talk because I really wanted to talk spend a considerable amount of time talking about these obstacles and then also the opportunities that kind of come out of them. So in class, you introduced this kind of framework. I don't know if it's if it's your framework, I guess it is, about kind of these obstacles and opportunities to sustainable consumption. So could you please explain more about this framework? And then I also have like one additional question. Which of the obstacles you think is the biggest one to sustainable consumption? So the idea when I started investigating this was the first question that came to my mind was exactly around the, the attitude behavioral gap. So why aren't consumers behaving in a more sustainable manner than they actually report that they do or that they would like to? So what are the barriers? And as I tried to organize this, I thought of three general classes of, of obstacles. One class is related to the marketplace itself, how the market is structured. The other one is related to the individual itself, to the psychology, what's in people's minds that may make sustainable consumption harder. And the third one is about societal obstacles, what's in society in general, or prevent us from behaving, consuming in a more sustainable manner. So when you talk about if, if, this, if you were to compare all these barriers, it's hard to say that there's one barrier that is stronger than the other, more persuasive or more effective at preventing sustainable consumption than the other. What we can do is to look at this framework in every single industry or in every single context to then identify which barriers apply the most to mm -hmm. my activity or to my area of activity. So, for instance, the first class of barriers that we talk about are these market-related barriers. And we can talk about barriers in terms of convenience and availability, price and quality, and product information. So... If you think about this, most of, in general, most of the products and services that are offered are unsustainable, mm -hmm. relative to sustainable. So you have more unsustainable products that are available and convenient than sustainable ones. On average, this is true. Maybe truer in some industries than in others, but on average, this is true. I'll just give you a very good example of a discussion of this. And then let's bring this, for instance, to the fashion industry. New products are more readily available than used products. Okay. Clothes, so pre-loved clothes exist, they are in the market, but they are not as readily available as new ones. Okay. Yep. So that already gives a competitive advantage to new clothes relative to, to pre-loved ones. Mm. Okay. So could this be changed? Could this be modified? Yes, it could. Let's make the used ones more readily available. Okay. Somehow, for every reason or for multiple reasons, these products are not on the same shelves. We have stores that sell pre-loved items or have actually even areas or neighborhoods that are more likely to sell pre-loved products and others that sell more than new ones. Why aren't they in the same shelves or the same hangers next to one another, right? Mm. Why couldn't we put them, why couldn't we make them as convenient and as available? 
I have no doubt based on everything that we know from consumer behavior that making products that in this case more sustainable or reusable products more available, it would increase the sales of these products. Yep. Right? And the impact could be quite significant because you're talking about actually reducing overproduction and overconsumption by reselling. This applies to the, the, the fashion industry, but applies to pretty much any, any industry. Think of books. Why do we have areas or bookshops that only sell used ones? And many that only sell the new ones. Why aren't they next to one another? Mm -hmm. right? Wouldn't that make a difference? I think it would make a significant difference. And we have examples of this from other areas, for instance, in health. Right? Products that are healthier, making them more available in supermarket tends to increase the, sale, the sales of healthier items relative to the healthier ones. So we have enough studies documenting this. So availability and convenience, which I particularly believe that has a systematic and quite important impact, is just one of these obstacles and also presents a great opportunity for us to overcome and to promote sustainable consumption by just making them more conveniently available to consumers. Yeah, I also recently had a conversation with a friend who said that about recycling, how it is complicated in some countries that the recycling trash bins are located, let's say, a five-minute walk from the home, whereas the kind of landfill general waste trash bins are located just under the house or their apartment. And then obviously some people might not recycle or, or spend the five minutes walking to the recycling bins and just throw their recyclable waste into the general waste because it's just simply not as available as it could be, right? That's right. That's right. That's actually a very good example. Actually, there are studies documenting this phenomenon by manipulating, by running experiments in which one group is presented with more readily available and conveniently located recycling bins and others that are less available, less conveniently located. And we see the impact on recycling. Mm -hmm. And that's interesting that this impact is stronger than actually people self-report of how much they care about recycling. So people are recycling more or less, irrespective of how much they care. It's just because it's easier or harder to do. So when I, when I usually talk about behavior change, I think we could organize this in, there are three general mechanisms that can promote behavior change. One is how accessible in my mind this behavior is, right? Do I think about sustainability when I'm buying something or not? Mm -hmm. Can we make this more available? Can you give cues, prompts that to remind the people to think of this? The other one is how feasible the behavior is, right? How much resources do I have to spend to promote this type of behavior or to go through this type of behavior, to act in this, in this, in, in this manner? Make it more feasible reducing the amount of physical resources, financial resources, psychological resources, and time-related resources, reduce this, and this tends to increase the behavior, irrespective of how much, or over and above how much you care about this particular behavior. And the third one is how desirable it is, is how I believe that this is going to produce a good consequence, and so on and so forth. We tend to focus a lot on desirability. Let's convince people that sustainability is very important, and that people should do this, and fight climate change. Of course, this is very important. But some of these barriers are much more related to accessibility and feasibility. And that's your, the example that you gave is, is fantastic because it just fits very well with this, this argument. Yeah, I just had this discussion over the weekend, so that's why it came to mind. But then I'd like to unpack the, the framework you introduced with the barriers a bit more in depth. Not, not too much, but I'd like to just spend a couple, couple minutes talking about the other two dimensions of the marketplace barriers, which is price. Because the, the, the problem with sustainable or unsustainable products, like this kind of conflict, is that sustainable options, be it products or services, are often seen as more expensive. And I'd like to focus on the word seen because it is not 
often really much about the actual price, but more about the perceived price, right? I think we can talk uh, both price and quality, mm. which are bears. You can talk about the actual, the objective price and quality, and the perceived ones. And from the from a consumer point of view, the perceived is what matters the most, right? It's not only whether this this is more expensive, but how much I perceive it to be more expensive. Not if this is of lower quality, but how much I perceive this of, of be of lower quality. It is true that on average, sustainable items, if you are going to purchase them, because the most sustainable one is actually the cheapest one, which is actually not to buy anything, right? That's zero cost. But if thinking about purchase something, on average, it's very likely going to see that sustainable items tend to be more expensive than unsustainable ones. And that's a barrier. The problem is that the consumer, because knows this correlation, it builds this heuristic and this belief becomes very strong and it extrapolates to pretty much anything that everything that I see a product that I see it as more sustainable, I may see it as, as of higher price, even if it's not necessarily of a higher price. So the belief of the association between sustainability and being more expensive is a strong belief, a strong heuristic, as we call mm -hmm. The same applies to quality, right? So there is, when then we, what we call the sustainability liability effect, is that the association between sustainability and lower perceived functional quality. There are examples, it may happen sometimes and other times, but consumers have, many consumers have built this association that sustainable products tend to not perform as well as unsustainable ones. And this can apply to multiple product categories, not to all product categories, but certainly can apply to, to, to several, several product categories. And the problem is that as these beliefs became more ingrained, it becomes quite of a strong barrier. Right? I'm going to buy this, I want to buy the sustainable product, but I don't know, maybe a laundry detergent, but this is a sustainable, eco-friendly one, and then I perceive that this laundry detergent is not cleaning as well as the conventional one. So as this beliefs is spread and spread across product categories, this is a challenge. So we have to always be mindful of this in, in, in the products that we, from a company's perspective, the products that we offer and how we can try to overcome or mitigate this potential liability effect. Hmm. And to connect it to what you mentioned about the laundry detergent being labeled as more eco-friendly brings me to the third dimension, which is the product and consumption information on the product, right? And so even if some consumers, let's say, want to behave sustainably, how can they be sure that if we buy products that are labeled eco-friendly, green, sustainable, environmentally friendly, and there is probably a hundred different names for this, that they are indeed as green? So recently there was this study that the EU Commission found that over 50% products labeled as sustainable gave misleading information and might not have been sustainable. This morning I read that the EU Commission is is issuing some kind of fine, financial fine on this. So could you tell us a bit more about this? Yeah, so that, that is, so if you talk about the market barriers, just going back to the framework... So there are three classes of, of market-related obstacles. One class who can talk about availability and convenience. So the products are not as available, the sustainable product is not as available or not as convenient as a sustainable one on average. The second one is market pricing and, and quality. Sustainable products tend to be perceived and often are more expensive and perceived as of lower quality. This happens in many product categories. And the third one is exactly what you're mentioning now, is product information or lack of product information or misleading claims, which is, is very hard for the consumer in, under many circumstances to know which product is actually more sustainable. Right? So how do we challenge this? Well, we can provide eco-labels, we can standardize, but as of now, what we see is a plethora of, 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 of labels, a lot of misleading claims, as in the report that you just mentioned, in the, in, which makes it very hard for the consumer to really know even when he or she wants to 
purchase something that's more sustainable to actually know which option is indeed more sustainable. There are there are ways of addressing this. Of course, having a standard eco-label, it's arguably one of the 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 best strategies, but it's very hard to implement unless it comes from the government. The EU is probably going to that direction, is probably going to establish what they call the product environmental footprint. They've been discussing this for, for many years and they have even the labels that they, they could be that could be used and that would be implemented across Europe. But we have also other initiatives. So I remember the other day I was listening to, listening to your podcast and I think Tom Delay. Tom Delay was here from Carbon Trust, and Carbon Trust has an eco-label, has a Carbon Trust, the product can be Carbon Trust certified. So these are very nice initiatives, but they are voluntary. The company has to, must want to do this. And so some companies do, other companies don't, and then the consumer may, 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 may in some product, for some product categories, may not have enough information to make the decision, even when he or she wants to, to act in a more sustainable manner. I believe that in these cases, government plays an important role. So mm. policy is going to make a difference. As it has happened, and we've seen this already, this is nothing new. We've seen this with nutrition facts, right? So, and Europe now is moving more and more into have the, the Nutri-Score probably, which started in France, but being adopted across Europe, which is probably a good idea. I must say though, if you look at the research on this, it's not a silver bullet. It's not going to solve all the problems. The effect of, the, of labels are, exist, but they are not huge on the consumer side. They may be actually even stronger on the company side for a company not wanting to be poorly labeled, right? So companies may actually end up offering more sustainable products if they get a very mm. poor grade and the consumers also are going to respond more positively. But again, it's this is one of the opportunities that we have and one of the obstacles to overcome, but certainly is not just it's not the only one that produces the, the ultimate effect. Think another very good example of this, correlate, think about cigarettes. Mm. The information is there. The labels are there. The warning labels have been there since the 60s and 70s. And now even, we have a pictorial. Yeah, exactly. They're even stronger than just pure pictogram. They are very raw. That's right. They're very emotional. They, they trigger shame, disgust, and, and, yeah. and, and, and all the feelings that promote. But you, know, you still have a significant market. And if you look at the, uh, the cigarette industry, it actually gives a, a lot of good, good, interesting insights for sustainability. Which are the policies that actually produce, among, among the policies that produce the most effective, among the policies that are most effective, two of them are, are particularly clear. One is banning particular areas of consumption. So you cannot smoke inside. Okay? Mm -hmm. And that's what we're doing with this. You're tackling the convenience. You make it very inconvenient to smoke, right? Mm -hmm. It's a cold day here today. If I want to smoke, I have to go outside. So it's not about telling you more information, not it makes it less feasible to yeah. behave in that way. That produces an effect. The second one is actually price. Price does matter. Taxation does produce an effect. We, we are seeing this also when it relates to health. Taxation of sugar, it does produce an effect. Now the carbon tax here is the, 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 the related area, the related policy in, in sustainability. And we know it also produces an effect. So there are other industries that can give us a lot of insight, and many of them point that not only information, which is also important, should have provide information so the consumer knows, but this is not the only policy or the only interventions that should be out there. We need, we need others that do not necessarily need to come from government, can come from industries getting together, can come from consumers pushing companies to do it, but more is, is, is needed if you want to really promote sustainable consumption. Mm. So we now spoke about these market barriers, which are, I would say, the most, let's say, tangible ones from the, from the framework, because the other ones, the individual and the societal, 
are kind of more present in the behave in the consumers themselves if I can say so. So let's now move on to the individual barriers. Could you please tell us more about this dimension, what it includes, and we can un unpack it. So when we talk about individual barriers, essentially we talk about psychology and uh, what are the beliefs and what are the biases that consumers have that can actually make it harder to behave or to consume or to purchase or dispose in a sustainable manner. So the first group we can talk is about consideration and impact. So going back to the, the, the point that I was making about uh, cognitive accessibility, that when consumers go to buy any product or service, they are going to consider certain attributes, right? There's a large number of attributes that you could consider, but consumers are not going to consider all of them. They select a few of them. Which are the ones that they select the most? Well, the ones that are more accessible in their mind or the ones that are more clearly visible in front of them. So cognitive accessibility, what's the top of mind, and what's very salient in the environment, that's what you end up paying more attention to and considering it. We know this in, in, from, from, from researching several areas of, of consumer behavior and, and social psychology in general. Now, when you think about this, one of these attributes is environmental impact. So and that's one of the research that we are conducting is that the extent to which, to which extent do consumers spontaneously consider mm -hmm. environmental impact when they are making purchase decisions or disposal decisions or consumption decisions. And what we observe is that environmental impact is actually not as frequent, does not come to mind as frequently as we would have hoped, right? But it's also, this is also not very surprising, right? Because there are other attributes that we as consumers have, have been, been using for many, many years and that are quite also important. We think of price, we think of brand, we think about convenience, we think about taste, we think about appearance and quality, so on, or quality and so on. So environmental impact can be one of them, but it has a lot of other attributes competing with. So it's not surprising that many consumers, and I would say that most consumers in most countries probably don't take into consideration environmental impact in most of their project decisions. When do they do it very frequently? Well, they do it for some product categories in which sustainability and the environment have become quite of a prototypical issue. Mm -hmm. Think of plastic versus paper bag, right? Mm -hmm. Using plastic versus reusable. That has become quite salient in, pe in people's minds. But for many other product categories, whether you're going to buy a toothpaste or, or even a piece or either meat versus uh, red meat versus chicken versus plant-based meat, many consumers may not even think about this. Mm -hmm. So in there's also, so there's variance across product categories. There's variance across countries. We observe a little bit of variance across countries. So for instance, in the UK, I would say that in possibly in Europe in general, the consideration is possibly a little bit higher than in other, in other regions. But it's also not that everybody thinking about this and putting this in their consideration set, look, environmental impact, this is one of the top four attributes that I take into account. Mm. This is not the case. So making consumers to consider it more often by obviously this debating it more, but also by making it more salient in front of them. And that's also another benefit of eco-labels. Because we always think of, as we were discussing before, we think of eco-labels or, or nutri-labels or warning labels in cigarettes as providing information. Of course, they're very important. That's one of the main functions. But the second function that is also very important is that they serve as prompts. They remind you of mm -hmm. thinking of this attribute. And we underrate how much this is important just to have this reminder for consumers to think, or think about this attribute as well, which may produce an effect. So this is one, 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 one aspect, which is the consideration. As you move from the consideration, there's also what we call the impact. Well, let's assume that I consider this product. 
the second question that I may ask myself is that the extent to which my behavior is going to make a difference, right? For, think about climate change. Well, if I stop eating this type of product and start eating that type of product, if I move from, from this type of product to that type of product, will that make a difference? And the problem is that many people believe that their behavior is not going to make much of a difference. Or even if they do, they believe that others are not going to behave, mm. what we call the collective impact. So, so this, what we call in, in psychology, we would call this the self-efficacy, self-efficacy type of effect, is that we, I don't, many consumers don't believe that they will be able to help this particular cause. Mm. And that also prevents them. So having messages, having mechanisms to show that more consumers are doing this and that their behavior does make a difference can contribute. So this is one of the, the groups of, of, of aspects in, in individual, among the individual bearers that play a role. The second one relates to biases. And there are particularly two biases that are very strong. One is what we call present bias and the other one is the status quo bias. The present bias, or simply, even if it's not a bias or temporal discounting, is essentially the fact that we care less about the future than we care about the present. Okay? This is not irrational. The present should matter a lot. But sustainability, by definition, is a problem that, we sh that should require us to think a little bit about the future. Yep. And because we have this bias of focus too much on the present, that's a huge obstacle. So how do we make consumers to think more Enough. about the future? And, and, and that's how there are many strategies to say, well, the present is more concrete, is more emotional, is more certain, and that's why we care about the present. Can we make the future more concrete, more certain, more emotional? So these are strategies kind of bringing the future to the present in order to help consumers behave in a more sustainable manner. The second one is about the status quo bias, which is essentially the fact that, on average, the option that represents the status quo is more likely to be chosen than the option that represents the alternative. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, if I have, if I'm used to eat one particular unsustainable product, for me, it's much easier to continue consuming that way because I know how it looks like, I know how much it costs, I know how much it tastes, yeah. I know exactly where to buy, and so on. To move this to the alternative requires a lot of change. And that, that, that's what I call the status quo bias. Mm. Since most of what we consume, and because of our lifestyles from history, have been relatively unsustainable, it means that the status quo bias prevents us, makes it harder for us to move from the unsustainable to the sustainable option. So, for instance, there's been a huge debate these days about the ultra-low emission zones or the mm. zero-emission zones that are being implemented in, in, in London or in Oxford, the zero emission zones, and so on yeah. and so forth. This, of course, respect of, of, of who is right or wrong on this, but there's a clear, strong impact of the status quo bias because it's going to require people to change from one type of, of a behavior lifestyle to another. And it's quite, quite understandable that, it's, that this debate is there because it's not, very, it's not very easy, particularly when you talk about transportation, because it requires a dramatic change in, in, in people's lifestyle, yeah. right? And for some people, it may be very hard. So irrespective of, 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 of who is right and wrong in this particular circumstance or how the policy is being implemented and how it should be implemented, it's not surprising that this is a, this is a very strong bias that can, can help, can discourage sustainable consumption and, and behaviors in general. Mm. Yeah, this framework is amazing because you kind of point out many things that are hidden and you bring them to the surface, which is which is great. And the one last thing in, that I want to talk about within the individual is even if all these interventions help, help and people adapt their behavior in the short term, 
how do they let's say how how do they can persevere this in the long term so because for example circumstances can change the intervention might not be as salient in their minds anymore so how can we sustain sustainable consumption that's that's a very good question so Yeah, so some of these interventions can be a new policy or can be a new strategy that a company is implementing and so on and so forth. Many of them, they have to be short-lived. They cannot last forever because it's too costly, for instance. Mm-hmm. So if the government gives a subsidy, you cannot give the subsidy forever, right? I will give you a subsidy to install solar panels. Well, I'm going to do this for a certain, certain period of time, then I'm going to withdraw this and hope that the behavior is going to continue when the intervention is gone. We can think about a company that gives a price discount for you to try this this new uh, sustainable product in an, in in hope that once the discount is taken away, the behavior is going to continue by itself. So there are, there's often this challenge of the extent to which short-term interventions can produce long-term impact. Mm. There are a few reasons why when this can happen. So for instance, some interventions help you to learn more about how to consume this product. It's learning about, called learning about the process, right? So for instance, a friend of mine is vegan and I wanted to try this, but I'm really concerned that I'm not going to be capable of knowing exactly what to buy, where to buy, when to buy, and so on, because this world seems very complicated to me. So if I'm giving an intervention to try this for one month, then all these barriers that I had, all these beliefs about how hard it is to learn, may go away. Mm. And once these barriers have gone away, then I don't need an intervention anymore because I've learned how to consume this way, and then I can. this can have an impact on, on, on the long run. The second example is not learning about the process, but learning about the outcome. Sometimes you have all these preconceptions of, so, well, I don't like this because of perceived quality. Mm-hmm. This product's not very good because it's, it's sustainable. I don't know. I can eat, I can have a, eat some, some, some sustainable product that, if, that I believe that is not going to be as, as tasty or, or, or try a product that I believe that's not going to be as efficient. So give you an intervention that allows people to try it for a number of days or, or, or a few months can be enough for people to build this new belief about the about how pleasant it is, this new behavior, and then you don't need the intervention anymore. So these are just a couple of examples of that interventions that can be implemented for a short period of time, but can have a long-term impact because this short term of this short amount of time allows them to learn about how to consume or dispose this product, but also learn about how pleasant or tasteful this product is, which Mm. then be carried over once the intervention is gone. Yeah, I also believe that this is a debate not only related to sustainability, but also, let's say, building healthy habits with like exercise, diet and all these things. It's debated again and again. So we just need to make it more salient also for the sustainability discussion. That's right. That's right. And I think it applies. And again, I think health and and, uh, cigarette consumption is also another example. So for instance, people may believe hold the belief that they are not capable of stopping okay, smoking. Stop smoking. Mm-hmm. If you have an intervention that they can do and then you teach them and then they learn, so, wow, I was capable of doing this. So that can can can, can encourage them and, and help in the long run. Yeah. No, great. So we now discussed both the market barriers and the individual barriers, which leads me to the third dimension of the of the framework, which is the societal vi- uh, obstacles and opportunities. So I do have a couple of concrete questions, but just can you introduce what the societal level entails? Yeah, what I, what I mean by the societal obstacles are the ones that are more related to how we how we as as consumers, as individuals, relate to society. What are our social norms? What are our perceived identities? And how society is unequal? And how this can impact or 
prevent sustainable consumption and also how can we overcome them. So, for example, one aspect that people often measure, and many surveys measure this over the years, is environmental values right? mm. or biospheric values, how much people care about the environment and how much this has been changing over the years. Mm -hmm. We do observe a change, people being more and more intrinsically connected to nature and caring about nature and, and being concerned about it. But we also know that there's a gap between being concerned and and behave in, in, in a sustainable manner. But there, there is good news in that sense that as you see, as we see more and more people in general valuing, valuing the environment and caring about, about the environment. But this certainly is not enough. The other aspect that relates is related to social identity. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I find particularly concerning. Social identity essentially is the extent to which I see myself as part of a given group and that represents me. So mm. I... I'm, if, I'm, if I support a particular football team, I see this as my part of my identity and, and that's part of who I am. Yeah. But it can be also related to your job. So I'm an academic. I see myself as an academic. That's part of my, of my identity as one professor, as one academic among my friends. But another one, which is very powerful and has become more and more powerful, is actually political identity. Right? Mm -hmm. How I identify myself with one particular political group versus the other. And this is where I think that one of the main challenges lies because these political identities, if the if the environmental debate is politicized, and it has been politicized, and I have a political identity that goes in favor or against it, then it can be quite problematic, right? We've seen this strongly in Brazil, in the US, in which the debate about the about climate change and environmental protection and sustainable concept, concept consumption have been politicized. People who are who believe that their social identity is to be against that yeah. that that particular policy are going to be more against just because it's not part of the identity. Those who are in favor are going to be in favor just because it's is aligned with their identity, and that creates a huge a huge challenge. So how we can overcome this, and we should try to overcome this, maybe trying to make it of a less political debate, or maybe trying to find aspects that converge both political identities. These are where we should strive to, but it's much strive for, but it's much easier to to say than than to do, do. But it's clearly quite a challenge. Yeah, I just I, I, I'm not sure if I remember correctly, but there's this a very popular documentary slash movie. I think it was a movie with Leonardo DiCaprio on Netflix called Don't Look Up. Mm -hmm. I think that kind of showed the politicization of climate change, but they kind of gave the example of an asteroid hitting the Earth and yes. scientists saying, oh yeah, it's a problem, but people not believing them because also of their political interests. So recommend that if, if someone wants to someone wants to watch it. Another thing that I want to discuss with the societal goals is our norms and, and status. So there's been this very famous experiment that, that I've heard of several years back about in hotels where they give towels. They sometimes ask consumers to reuse these towels. And the way how hotels, hotels ask consumers to reuse them actually matters, right? So the message matters. Could you please tell us a bit more about this? Yeah, the logic, if there are, if there's one intervention that tends to to produce meaningful results in changing behavior, social norms is one of them. Okay. And social norms essentially is, we can talk about two types of social norms, what are called descriptive or injunctive. Descriptive is what people do, mm. what they believe that people do, and injunctive and what they believe people should do. Okay. So we, we are social creatures, we are influenced by what others do. And, and in many cases, we try to mimic what others do. Mm. Okay. We follow the flow. So if the social norm is to be unsustainable, then this is a huge barrier because yeah. you try to follow the social norm. And for many habits, that's the case. 
right? We've have lived in, in a world of a lot of unsustainable consumption patterns. And we look around us and everybody's doing the same. So to deviate from, from the norm is quite a challenge. So one in the example that you gave is that one, one way of doing this is trying to find instances in which the social norm is actually to be more sustainable or is moving towards more sustainability mm -hmm. and try to present this information to consumers and that may change how they behave in a more sustainable manner. So if I learned that actually most of my colleagues are actually not spending as much energy in their energy bills, and then I am spending much more than they are, this tends to produce an effect. And actually, there are a lot of research showing that this is indeed true. Mm. And actually, many companies that start implementing this, mm -hmm. right? So providing information about what your peers are doing, and if this is in a sustainable manner, then can be then can be persuasive. The challenge is, is that many of these social norms, again, are actually not very sustainable, right? Mm. But there are there are trends, there are shifts. So and you can talk about so if you think about many, many issues related to transportation, the number of your colleagues who actually take public transportation rather than driving a car and so on and so forth. There are, there may be examples in which you'd be surprised that actually consumers are behaving in a more sustainable manner than you would expect. And that can actually influence your behavior as well. So presented this information can be can be quite can be quite useful. Mm. I would, there's many things I'd like to talk about, but just for time's sake, we'll, let's move on the the last dimension of the framework, which is growth and inequality. But I'd specifically like to we spoke a little bit about like the wealthy versus less wealthy countries. So and you gave give your insight there, but I'd like to talk about a bit more about limits to growth. You presented this in the beginning of the class, and I, I found it interesting how we kind of came back to it in the at the end. So could you please tell us? a bit more what limits to growth is and how it is connected to the sustainable consumption debate. Yeah, the, the idea is that the growth, the growth paradigm in which the planet has not boundaries, has, has no boundaries, mm. it's, it should be challenged. So that's the main idea. Now, the question is how we do this. So economists have been debating this for a long, long time. And the field of ecological economics has emerged to actually challenge this mm -hmm. standard growth paradigm and see how we can accommodate economics into this new into this new paradigm in which growth in which you have actually a steady state movement rather than continuous growth irrespective of whether this growth is economic or uneconomic right and the there's a lot of debate and I'm not an economist I would like not to I'm sure that there are people who are more equipped than I am to to talk about this but the notion from a consumer point of view is is an important one is the idea that is not only about what type of products that we consume, but mostly about how much we consume. Mm -hmm. So this has huge environmental impacts, but we tend to focus more on type rather than on quantity. And that's what relates to growth. So if I have, in, if I have enough resources, I'm going to buy an electric vehicle. I'm going to buy products from from recycled material. I'm going to buy probably fancy and uh, vegan products and so on and so mm -hmm. forth. That's maybe good, and it's, in many cases it is appropriate, but this is all about type. I'm still consuming a lot, but just consuming differently. Yeah. The, the challenge that I think we face the most and that we talk not as much is uh, how we reduce excessive consumption particularly among those who have the resources. So when I have the resources, the question that I ask myself is that, can I afford it? The question I should ask is, can the planet afford it? Mm -hmm. And the planet cannot, right? And we don't ask these questions. That goes back to the consideration point that we were talking about, right? And so how do, we, how do we make this shift? And that's a huge change. That's a change in lifestyle, a change in mindset. And I think more and more, 
people are talking about this. Your generation is certainly talking about more about this. My daughter's generation is certainly talking more about this. But I think the debate, and that goes back also to marketing, how do we accommodate the, the, the standard approach in marketing to a reduction in overconsumption, mm-hmm. overproduction and overconsumption, mm-hmm. right? How can we move to an ownership mo- model, to a rental model, yeah. right? How can we, as we talk about the reduce, re- reuse, and recycle, we have folks a lot on the recycle. It's about type. We should focus more on the reduce mm-hmm. and the reuse, mm-hmm. right? And so actually the fact that the recycle was the, the, the um, action that was implemented all, all over the world, 40 years ago, recycling was very little. Recycle today, whether you like or not, whether it's effective or not, is another story. But there is recycling in many cities, most of the world. But the debate about reduction and reuse is minimal, yeah. right? Which yeah. are the national policies about reduction and reuse? It's not, because it kind of conflicts with growth. It conflicts with the notion of consumerism that we are all part of. GDP. And that's where, yeah. that's where the challenge GDP, and that's where the challenge, I think, I think lies. I think it's possible, but I think that if, if there's one... One, one message that could come out of, the, of all this discussion is exactly about, about this. How can we move and increase the debate of create business models that may be profitable to companies, that may be part of the system that we live in, but that also focus on reducing excessive production and consumption? And I certainly, to, to keep it optimistic, I certainly believe that there are examples of companies that have moved to, have changed completely their business model to accommodate to this kind of new type of economy call it circular or any other any other name but i mean there's still obviously a long way to go nice so now we discussed the whole framework thank you for sharing that eduardo before we move towards the very end i'd like to spend a small amount of time to discuss experiments as a tool in the consumer behavior realm so can you please tell us why or can you please explain why experiments are so important in exploring sustainable consumption and maybe name your favorite experiment in the field and what result it was yeah well, i'm not sure i'll be able to name the favorite one it's like it's like music right the songs <laughs> which is your favorite song i think it changes every two three years you change your favorite song but but experiments essentially or it can also be called the randomized control trials mm-hmm. or a b tests is essentially one way of testing whether the intervention that you are planning on, on, on using to promote sustainable consumption, for instance, if, it's being, if it is effective or not. So literally the same way that you, that you, that you try the, effective, the effectiveness of, of a drug, a medicine, in medical sciences, you test the, the effectiveness of a given policy or a given intervention that the company wants to implement on sustainable consumption. So you randomly assign people to different treatments can be a control treatment where you don't have the where you don't have the intervention and 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 the intervention treatment and the where you're going to treat and and people consumers are going to get exposed to that and then eventually after a, a certain period of time you see the difference between the two if there is an in these two groups are comparable because they have been randomly assigned then you observe and then you observe a difference then you can claim look this intervention is working more and more companies are doing this governments are doing this mm-hmm. and and it's one way of going beyond the try and error oh let's try this see if it works let's try that see if that works but do this in a systematic manner when you control when you have one group in which you are going to promote intervention the other group that's going to serve as control and you're going to test whether or not your proposed intervention is effective you can do this at a smaller a smaller scale for instance going back to the example of well let's let's see if making reusable products more available in retail stores, regular retail stores, would that increase the sales of reusable mm-hmm. products? What would happen to the new ones? Yeah. Can you test this? Well, we can have a whole bunch of stores, randomly select some of them 
to have the the, the pre-loved ones as well, and some of them not have it, and see whether and how it impacts overall sales in general. Mm-hmm. So this you do this with a set of stores, then okay, it's a it's a big company, it's a multinational company, it's working now. We're going to scale this to to other areas. So that is so that is the logic. I don't have one particular one experiment that I, I like the most, but one that I presented in. In our class, that I, I I liked a lot was was the one on the shower, where where the consumer. So one one dilemma that we also face as consumers is sometimes you don't even know how much we are consuming, and water is a good example. So how much water are we consuming when we are taking a shower? So what would happen if we were told how much we are consuming and how much this is harming the environment? So this was done in in a, ho- in a group of a few hotels in, I think, Switzerland, in which the researchers randomly assigned rooms to also to have this information presented to them, right, while they were taking a shower or not presented to them and saw that the impact in reducing energy consumption, water consumption, and so on and so forth. And this was actually good because it actually is not only good for the planet, but also good for the company. So there are some examples and good examples in which the sustainability and profitability are directly aligned. It's not always the case. I would say that possibly most of the case is not, is not true, but many instances this is true. In the service industry, this can be true because you pay a flat fee. So if you go to a hotel room, you pay a flat, a flat fee for that hotel room irrespective of how much you consume of water or energy in that room. So for the company, I want you to consume as little as possible, and this is also going to be good for the environment, right? So now we are, we are working on a project. I'm working with one of my former doctor students in which we're running a field experiment in Mexico doing something along these lines where we mm-hmm. manipulate the status quo, whether they want to participate or not in a sustainability program, one of them, they are assigned to participate and have to opt out, and the other, the other one, they have to opt in. And, and, and we are going to see the extent to which they are, this impacts their, their own behavior. So I think there are hundreds of experiments now being conducted more and more in the industry, but I think we, we need more and we need it faster if mm. you want to address the problems that, that you want to address. Just one thing I want to say about this is that we were tasked also to design one experiment that is not as easy as it seems <laughs> to design a good experiment. So it's always interesting to read about the experiments that have been done. Then it makes so much sense how they did it. But when you should come up with your own, then it's a challenge. But so now I'd like to spend the last two questions to tell some of our listeners what they can do to change their behavior. So my first question is, what one thing can everyone change in their lives starting today or tomorrow to consume more mindfully and sustainably? I think it's to focus more on quantity than on type. And, and I think the, the irrespective of product that we are consuming, we tend to focus more on what we are going to consume if this product is more or less sustainable, if we have a more sustainable mindset, and we fail to acknowledge or to realize that what, what impacts the most is essentially how much you consume. So reduce the excesses, and I'm sure that we can all, and it comes from, it goes from food to clothing, transportation, uh, you name it. So focus more on quantity than on type, I think would be my, my advice. And I think where it's, again, easier to say than to do, yeah. but, but I think that's probably the one that we should direct more our attention to. The problem sometimes actually when we go into type is that actually can even backfire. So for instance, if I buy something that's more, that I that's more sustainable may actually even reduce my guilt feelings associated with sustainability and I keep buying more of mm-hmm. this, which the idea is actually not buy if, 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 if possible, of course. 
Yeah, no, that's great advice. And actually, super important, if this is the only thing you remember from this talk, just that's already a good achievement. And my last question is about, you know, many many of our listeners are either students trying to see how they can help uh, the climate or young professionals or, or, or experienced professionals working in the climate space. But what would you advise these people from your experience of kind of from your perspective as a researcher and professor? I, I think it's it's a great time to do research, to study, and to find a job in the area of sustainability and climate change. The number of options, and you probably are seeing this as you are going to the job market, the number of opportunities for those who have a good training in sustainability and climate change is growing exponentially. Unfortunately, the uh, the climate change problem is not going to be solved anytime soon. So the demand for people who are well-trained to help tackle these problems across several industries, across several departments in a given, in a given company, It's just going to escalate. So all the companies are demanding more and more people who know about climate change, who know about sustainability, who know about sustainability in areas of financing, marketing, and leadership, and so on and so forth. Mm. So uh, for those who are interested in this area, I think it's actually a great time to 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 jump into it and to, and to do more research into that. Another thing that I'd like to mention at the end, Claudia, if I may, is that the, the climate change management and finance program, if you look at this, is a pretty unique program particularly because it focuses on a problem. Mm-hmm. So think about all the programs that are out there. Traditionally, the programs are either focused on a discipline, this is about management, finance, marketing, or engineering or whatever, or focus on a particular sector. Or we're going to do this in real estate, or we're going to do this in energy, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. This program is focused on the problem. Mm-hmm. And, and in doing so, What it, and you probably noticed that, in doing so, it forces us to find people from very, very diverse backgrounds, but that they're all trying to address the same problem. So you are going to have a physicist, you are going to have a consumer researcher, you are going to have an economist, you are going to have someone with the training in finance, and so on. And that makes the program quite transdisciplinary. So I think more and more, actually, universities are going to go into that direction, yeah. into focusing on problem-driven programs rather than discipline direct programs. So we talk about climate change, but we can talk about inequality, we can talk about corruption, we can talk about obesity, we can talk and all of these problems have been addressed by multiple disciplines, but usually separately. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they're actually even talking about exactly the same thing, but using different words. But they're not talking to one another. The disciplines are not talking to one another because you're divided by department. I think and then here as an academic, I think We as academics would benefit more and the students would benefit more the more we have programs like this one yes. that focus on a huge global problem, mm-hmm. right? It can be any of these that I mentioned or many others. Yeah. And some something tells me that more and more we are going to head into that direction. Yeah, no, that's great insight and actually nice to imagine our program in that way because I, I didn't... I obviously know that I interact with people from these various backgrounds and we obviously are all problem-driven. But when you say it like this, it actually makes very much sense and I already know of examples where other universities are kind of trying to do the same and establishing these programs as, as of new. So that's, I think, a positive trend. But with that, I'd like to thank you, Eduardo, for coming here. It was a very, very knowledge-filled, inform- informational di- discussion with you. So thank you for that. And to all the prospective students, I highly recommend choosing Eduardo's elective. And here you get a glimpse of what it entails. So thanks for that again, Eduardo. Thanks a lot. It was a great pleasure being here. Yeah.